0: I think I'm having an art attack what's up, everybody? and welcome to another episode of art attack. I think it is our ninety fourth ninety fourth episode we're gonna be doing a hundredth episode live somewhere someplace somehow. I don't know how we're gonna do it, but thank you guys for listening. I mean, this has been a whirlwind. 94 episodes. Can you believe it? And thank you guys for leaving reviews. Please leave any reviews possible because we do this for the love, not the money, not the fame, although the money would be nice. Sponsors. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but um, we do it because we love it and we love the fact that you guys actually leave us reviews. I just wanted to read a, uh, a review by Jordan Dyer, B-R-R-R. He says, great info, good back and forth between the host. Justin is the curmudgeon who thinks art should be limited to what curators think is art. And Lizzie is more lax and accepting of all art forms. (laughs) Interesting dynamic since he is the artist and she's the instructor. Scarcity mindset versus abundance mindset. Thumbs up. Yellow thumbs up. Like a Bart Simpson skin tone thumbs up. First of all, I came up with a scarcity abundance mindset. I've said it oh yeah, many, many times on the show. No, I've said it all the time on the show. It, I think he must be commenting and, about my comment and making it ironic because I'm like, you need to be abundant. And he's like, Boo is the scarcity one. <laughs> but I don't think I'm really the curmudgeon one, so go to hell. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I don't feel like I'm the curmudgeon one. But you know what? We, the reality is we just disagree on some stuff, and that's the reality. Which is good, but I think we also agree, and I don't think Lizzie loves everything either.
1: I definitely don't, but what I really appreciate about this review and about all the reviews is that you don't have to agree with us, you don't necessarily have to appreciate our lens or our perspective all the time, but the fact that what we're saying is jostling a response, that to me is the point. That, I think, is the point of good art, good discourse, good everything, is that we are just providing fodder for you to come up with your own opinion. So if you think Justin is a curmudgeon, I'm not going to hate that. I mean, of only Of course you're you not, because me. you're painted that- <laughs>
0: Wow, what a weird thing to support everything I didn't say. You completely disagreed with our...
1: No, but somebody said that strange, I was... Bas-
0: stranger comment.
1: Yeah, totally. But I remember ages and ages ago, somebody left a review basically saying that... I made it seem like white men are not allowed to make art, which I personally disagree with, but I think that that's a valid opinion if it's one that was generated from an episode. So I'm not going to hate on that either.
0: I wrote that. No <laughs> kidding. I didn't write that, but I was thinking it all the time. I always think that. But okay, guys, look, thank you for your comments. Please leave more. Uh, we love them. We love to have your perspective, albeit that I'm curmudgeon and that... <laughs> And I'm a man-hater. <laughs> Lizzie's a man-hater. At least you're not a man-eater. Uh, that's a reference to a song. No, I, She's I got a it. a man- Okay. So today we are talking about a movement that I understand more in the space of furniture <laughs> and music. When Lizzie suggested to me, hey, let's do an episode on minimalism, I was like, oh, like, I feel like... I don't really know that world. So I did a little digging of the world, a little research, because I don't think your average art history nerd buff whiz knows that much about minimalism because it wasn't here that long, wasn't that many people yet. It is definitely a movement that was very interesting and occupied by very certain, very, very, very famous artists who some, some of who are still alive and, I consider myself a minimalist in the way that I live my life. I like to live, you know, very sleek, kind of not a lot of stuff. You look at my studio, it's white, right? Not a lot of things going on in there. Uh, And then I realized that my favorite, or one of my favorite composers is a minimalist, and that's Philip Glass. So we all know Philip Glass's work, and if we don't, No, we know we just don't know we know. Right. But I didn't really know too much about the art and yet it is a very important, I guess, bridge in art history and something that everybody here needs to know about.
1: Yeah. And it's really interesting to me to hear you describe it as maybe more of a niche movement, even within the the linear span of art history. And I had never really thought about that, but I think you're right. And as you were saying it, I was trying to figure out why is that right? And I've identified two reasons mm. spontaneously in my head. So That's what
0: I like about you. You actually like, I'm a doctor who throws out a lot of things against the wall. You're a doctor who actually makes a diagnosis. You actually have, <laughs> you're like, I'm going to diagnose this and I have a solution for it and a treatment for it. I don't know if I have a treatment for it. I just have a, I just, I just like analyze it from different ways. And then I go, well, go fucking take care of yourself. I don't know what, what what can I do for you? You know what I mean? You're (laughs) on your own, but you died. I like that you can diagnose it. So why don't you diagnose this movement?
1: I think it's really important to ask those questions. Why do we do certain things? Why did this come out at the time that it did? And to try to identify some kind of response, even if there's no way for us to confirm it. But to me, I think there are two reasons. Number one, minimalism was introduced to the art world in 1965. And what else is going on in the art scene at that time? Pop art. And pop art is a lot more accessible, a lot more digestible. And even though the basic tenets of minimalism and pop art are not as dissimilar as you might think, just looking at the work... Pop art involves cartoons and consumerism and popular culture. And so I think that one movement eclipsed the other. And then the other reason is because minimalism seems like it is really precious, more elitist than most art movements on its surface, Mm -hmm. which is almost antithetical to the point because these artists are trying to create art that does not have interpretation, art that really is what it is. And so it's kind of, ironic that the way that we've interpreted it both on a human level but also on a scholarly one is actually just not to the point of their intention. But wasn't
0: minimalism... Not as much a reaction to popular art or pop art, but more a reaction to abstract expressionism. Oh,
1: absolutely. But since pop art and minimalism, they were movements that were being articulated concurrently, I think it's natural that one would seek priority over the other.
0: So the reason that it was an answer or a <clears throat> some kind of, uh, I guess, rebuttal to abstract expressionism is because there was so much... Quote unquote mood and angst and feeling and emotion in that. And they were, and minimalism came around and said, no, no, it's not. It's not. Don't be so freaking, um, don't be such a moody, broody, like hipster. You know what I mean? <laughs> don't be so dark. Like, just lighten up a little bit. Let's get, I mean, I look at, I look at minimalism and it really, in my mind, visually brings me to Japanese culture. And just things that are really beautiful and delicate and simple. Uh, obviously, it's a lot more boxy and, and German, but it's that it's it's the idea. It's got that feng shui kind of vibe where it's just it's allowing a piece of art to sit there freely and openly and to live as a, you know, like it could just be a cube on top of a cube, and it's like that. It is what it is. You know what I mean? There's a there's a beauty in the simplicity. As opposed to abstract expressionism, which is like heavy, broody, moody, you know, angst.
1: Yeah, and I think that it's astute to recognize the purity of minimalism and the fact that it is without this imprint of the artist. Because abstract expressionism was all about the intimate gesture of the artist, everything is just laden with emotion. Not all of those emotions had to be moody, broody, or hipster, but Mm. the majority of them were. Mm. But they were all so just expressive. And we even have expressionism in the way that we categorize these artists. And it just, the work is so vulnerable and so intimate, and it is so a product of its maker. And that is what the minimalists were rejecting. They wanted to de skill the art object. They wanted to deny the hand of the artist, and they did this through a myriad of really inventive ways that a lot of people just don't really know how to access the art once they hear this. So, I'm interested to hear your perspective on this mm-hmm. because we've discussed process mm-hmm. so many times in this show. And the minimalists, they didn't even touch the work. And the big artists that we we can talk about more in depth. There's Carl Andre, Donald Judd, Saul LeWitt, Richard Serra. And those sure, are the I think ones... Richard
0: Serra is probably the biggest, am I right? In terms of the most popular, recognized...
1: I think all four of all them. All four? Okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, Richard Serra, he has more of a presence in L.A. than the mm-hmm. other ones do. But I think they're pretty ubiquitous within the international Very L.A. centric.
0: I just, I just think that. Whatever's in L.A. <laughs> is what's happening L.A. Everywhere. is the
1: only thing that matters. But Absolutely. anyway, so these artists never really made anything. They conceptualized it. They right. ideated. They had a process. And then they would call a industrial manufacturer and say, hey, this is what I want, build this. And so there is no thumbprint on any of the work, a metaphorical one, but also a literal one. These artists are outsourcing everything to an industrial factory. And the reason why I think that there's a little crossover between that and the pop artist is because Andy Warhol, what about him, his studio being labeled the factory? Right. He also was removing the self, but we have representational work in his images, and so we feel like it's more personal. But when the minimalists are using bricks and pieces of metal and boxes that they're hammering into the wall, that feels so impersonal that we don't really know how to have a relationship with it.
0: And that makes you wonder, like, is it even art? Because it was some machine-made thing. Then you gotta go, well, how involved was the artist in terms of the concept? You know, because an architect doesn't build and construct a theme park or a beautiful building. He comes up with the design and the blueprint and says, hands it off to his team. Yes, he is the holder of the ideas. He's the brain trust of this incredible innovation. But just because you don't implement it, and I'm kind of arguing against myself right now.
1: I know I'm super impressed with this. This is so (laughs) anti-curmudgeon.
0: But I'm like, you know, you still have... Uh, you still have your thumbprint in the idea. So isn't that, isn't that really just enough? And a guy like Richard Serra, I think that he did wear the suit and the gloves and the and the goggles. And did some of the welding and stuff himself. I do believe that's true for the very him. early
1: stuff when he yeah. did that work called splashing. And there's that yeah. iconic image of, of him throwing the industrial material against the wall, which is kind of Polokian. In its process, but is Richard...
0: Pollockian a reference to Jackson Pollock? Yes, it okay, is. sorry. I was very... <laughs> woo, I never heard that. Draconian, however, now Pollockian. Interesting.
1: Yeah, well, I think I just invented it, but it's its a thing with That's the splashing. Okay. and is. Even titling the work, Splashing, that really is a reference to how Jackson Pollock is often discussed, and since minimalism is a reaction to... Abstract expressionism, I think that it is justifiable to make that connection. But he's not the purest of the minimalist artists. And so even though he may have his hand at the making, that's not really the minimalist agenda. It is to vehemently deny the artist's imprint on the work. And yeah, the idea is the thumbprint. The idea is the only thing that really matters. And Saul LeWitt, he took this to a really extreme place And he, so he does all these works with beautiful pencil work on walls and everything is very geometric. The minimalist aesthetic is geometric by nature, as you say, a lot of right angles. And Richard Serra introduces more curvilinear lines, another way that we can distinguish him from his colleagues. But typically we see boxes and we see rectangles and with Solowitz's design, he will create it and he does a blueprint, and that is the work. So when you you buy a Solowit at auction, mm-hmm. you're buying a blueprint, and then you have the onus to find a fabricator to put it up on your wall.
0: That's interesting. It's a little like Ikea, where <laughs> you buy the box, and then you get someone else to assemble it. Well, at least I do. But, you know, it is it is really, you know, you're proving everything that this gentleman uh, said about you in the past. You're supporting only white Oh, actually, you're not. No, no. you're not supporting white men. Somebody no, said kidding.
1: that I <laughs> I never support white <laughs> no, men. No, but all you're
0: doing right now is supporting white elite men.
1: Well, that's because those are all the minimalists. <laughs> I <It's> know, a...
0: <laughs> but it's an interesting thing, right? So you have this movement where you do have white men making things that feel elite. And it feels that way, Not, not saying it is at all, but it just feels that way because there is a stoic kind of hard removed quality to it It take away all of the concept you walk into a room you see a minimalist sculpture primarily let's remember this this is really an important point because we didn't talk about that minimalism visual art movement the minimalistic visual art movement is primarily sculpture can it include painting and drawing yes it can
1: frank stella
0: correct however primarily most of it was sculpture Mm -hmm. in the visual realm uh, obviously, there was a vi- there was a musical uh, dance. There's all kinds. Oh of- yeah,
1: Yvonne Rainer. She's a minimalist dancer, and Steve Reich. He's a minimalist musician. And you yeah, mentioned so the Philip musician
0: Glass. Steve Reich would just sit there and not play anything, and the dancer would sit there and not move. No, I'm kidding. I don't <laughs> know what they did, but <laughs> but Philip Glass again, who did a wonderful uh, album called uh, The Photographer, and he's been in you know tons of movie scores brilliant, brilliant composer, classically trained and orchestrates in such beautiful, brilliant ways. And you see Philip Glass everywhere throughout, and TV shows, movies, commercial stuff, non-commercial stuff, plays, off-Broadway, everything. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent, seriously, and he's super-duper talented. Uh, but when you go into a room getting back on track with, you know, Richard Serra, one of those, there, there is a definitely a, a feeling of, whoa, this is this is trippy. It's like, what, am I what, what, you know, how do I even, what am I doing? How do I interact with this? Because it then defines and occupies space in a way where it feels precious. Like it's not the thing where you want to have your. Well, kid will crawl on anything, so kids don't give, a sh- you know, a shit about preciousness, right? They're, oh, I'm going to crawl on that, Richard, Sarah. Who cares, right? It's just two, two <laughs> giant, you know, steel blocks. But there does feel to the adult mind who we've all been groomed to not touch things and to, to handle with care. We we look at that and we go, there's a preciousness about that. And it occupies the space in a different kind of way. And it feels, it feels elite. There's something about it that just feels elite.
1: And I agree with you. And I think that the way that you described the minimalist art redesigning the room and kind of activating a viewer and our own awareness of our bodies in that same room, occupying the same space as the sculpture, that that is really smart and very on point with what the minimalists were trying to do. They did not create boxes so that people like me, art historians, could wax poetically, like you say that I often do, and come up with some kind of analysis. When I see a box, it would be really a a misguided interpretation to say, When I see this box, I feel societally confined. And this is the 1960s. And so I'm thinking about the U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War. I'm thinking about the confining nature of African Americans in L.A. that led to the Watts riots. If I imprint my own understanding of history onto these forms, I'm missing the point. Really, what the minimalists were trying to do was to eliminate any kind of reference. They all this stuff was happening in 1965, those two events that I, I addressed, and also the assassination of Malcolm X. But minimalist work has nothing to do with any of it. It really is a formal exercise in asking people, do you like it? Do you not? And that's really the only the only obligation of the viewer is to figure out what we think. And that is a little bit freeing to a lot of people because in my own experience teaching minimalism, by this point, the 60s, we've already gotten through so much material that requires historical understanding, requires an understanding of what came before. And now it's almost like an exhale. All I care from my students is their response. Hey, what do you think about this? And you kind of have to be in the same room with the sculptures in order to truly understand it. You have to walk around. You have to feel your own scale in relation to the scale of the objects. And so just seeing a slide isn't going to solicit that kind of reaction. But that is what I mean by the minimalist not wanting to be elitist because everybody can have a reaction. Everybody does. You don't have to be an art historian You don't have to have had any particular type of schooling. In that sense, it is phenomenally democratic. But when you say it has the appearance of preciousness, I don't think that's wrong. I think it does. So I think that was the disconnect between their intention and the actual execution.
0: I feel like people, it's funny because it was a bunch of those American people that were the pioneers and the vanguards of this movement. But I feel like I look at it and I just think like, German, You know, like I have to make the, if today is going to be the, the block and I'm going <laughs> to like include the other one and it's going to be the most precise right angle in the entire world. You're going to see some things that's very special indifferent and it's going to occupy its own dimension <laughs> and hold its way you know what i mean it feels swiss or german or precise it's the guys who you know build automobiles the, these kind of industrial designers and i know it's not that but i also there's something about it that just i don't feel american like when you know what i mean certain art movements like pop art so american to which me which
1: started in england so i think that's oh, so hilarious oh, because pop art does feel Like it's so U.S. centric. pop
0: art was started in England? Yeah, by this guy named
1: Richard Hamilton. That's
0: so funny because it feels (laughs) to me, and by the way, guys, everyone's, as New York feels, you know, like graffiti was started in New York, everyone would argue that cornbread started graffiti in Philadelphia. That being said, pop art feels American, right? Right, Because we are the comic books. We are popular culture. We, you know, celebrate the deity of celebrity. That's who we are, this, an American movement, doesn't feel that way.
1: See, to it's me it funny. does because okay. I think American ingenuity is all about an embrace of industry. And artists like Dan Flavin, we talked about him in an earlier episode, he would take fluorescent pre-made, pre mm-hmm. light bulbs and put them on the floor, arrange them on the wall. And so then when the sculptures are activated, when they're turned on, it becomes this interplay between shadow and... Light and object and the wall and is it a sculpture? Is it a painting? Is it a dissolution of the two? And a light bulb or anything that's fluorescent—that is such a product of industry. And same with Donald Judd's media, uh, his materials, and all the other people that we've identified. And so for me, products of industry are so American.
0: Mm -hmm. I could see that, but I could, you know, it it just—it's a—it's—it came. It became, and now, like there's do you, there's not a movement anymore, right? I mean, it seemed like the movement evaporated with time, like many movements, they just evaporate, or they lead into something else. They fold quietly into the next movement, right? Just like some other movement, perhaps cubism early on folded into minimalism on some level, uh, I think that minimalism folded into other movements. And it definitely folded into furniture because I mean I swear to God every furniture designer now is a minimalist really it's and it's and there's a fun and when there's a aesthetic with functionality I think it's wonderful.
1: Yeah, I do too. You know and I, I mean? loved your bridging the minimalist dialogue to architecture because I think that's spot on. It is functional. And that makes me think of one particular minimalist artwork by Carl Andre, and it's called 140... I thought you were going to say
0: by Ikea, but go ahead, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's called 144-something, and it's all of these little lead plates that kind of look like tiles, 144 of them, and they're placed directly on the floor. And this is something really significant about minimalism that we have to... To discuss is that we don't have any bases typically when you think of a sculpture it has some kind of base even a minimalist aesthetic you actually mentioned broncusi and when we had a conversation Mm -hmm. about this episode asked if he was a minimalist and he's not and one way that i would be able to articulate that is because he made his own bases and the minimalist artists they just stuck their work directly on the wall, directly on the floor. It was this direct contact with its space. And so in Carl Andre's work, 144 of these little metal tiles are directly on the ground, and viewers are encouraged to walk on them. And one of my favorite things to do in a museum is to actually wait until people are looking at me and then walk on the work because you're totally right. We Mm -hmm. have been acculturated to stay a certain number of inches away from the art. We don't want to touch it. And so people look horrified. It's like I've spit on the Mona Lisa when I walk on this thing. They're like, no. And occasionally museum guards will come over to me and say, ma'am, you have to step away. I'm like, actually, I don't. The whole point of this is that we're meant to directly (laughs) engage and I am supposed to walk on this. It's almost like a debasement of the preciousness of art. And so even though it appears to be elitist, it's asking us to dismantle that concept of elitism. Yeah,
0: and to be interactive. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah,
1: But which I is loved, so fun.
0: I love the fact that you can do that. And you know, it's like you know the law, and <laughs> other people don't know the law, and you can have fun with the fact that you know the law. It's like, actually... Why don't you talk to somebody and bring them in here who's your supervisor? Because everything I'm doing is a, exactly what I'm supposed to do. Oh, my God. In fact, one time. And then you could take out a spray can and spray it all <laughs> oh over no. Rembrandt. They're like, what the?
1: What the? I totally forgot about this. One time I was being such an arrogant mother effer, there was an installation of a Carl Andre ground piece in some museum with a barrier encircling it. And I confidently stepped over that barrier and started walking on the art. (laughs) I mean, what a jackass thing to do. (laughs) But I know the intention of the piece. And to create a separation between the viewer and the experience of the object is to completely take away the point of this work. And so I just thought that it was a terrible curatorial choice. And Andre would have been really upset about that.
0: Okay, guys, well... Wait,
1: we have to talk about one thing. It's very important. The Richard Serra tilted arc. Okay. Do you know about this work? I
0: don't. Oh, my God. I mean, I'm sure I do because I know a lot of Richard Serra stuff. Yeah. as As you say, he does populate the museum walls and spaces of Los Angeles, but tell us about...
1: Okay, so this is basically going from the ground to the high reaches of the sky. And Richard Serra's work is very large and asks that the viewer recognize the vulnerability and the smallness and the fragility of our own bodies. And he uses really, really heavy materials, very thick, and... It feels precarious. It feels mm. like when there's the the torqued ellipse that it's seconds away from caving in on itself and mm. crushing the viewer. And there's actually one work that did end up killing a handler. It was called House of Cards, and he shouldn't have titled it. Minimalist work is typically called Untitled because mm. we're trying to eliminate any kind of reference outside of the object. So I wish that Richard Serra had not titled his piece Anyway, when the handler was putting it together, it wasn't strong enough, and there's no way. There were these places, like um, little holes where the the work would fit together, and that would Mm. secure its safety, but they were made pretty badly, and Mm. they fell, and one of the pieces trapped the art handler and ended up killing him, and then his family sued. They sued the artist, but the artist said, listen, I just ideated it. I came up with the concept, but somebody else made it, and installed it, and Mm -hmm. so that actually held weight, and so the the person who was successfully sued was the the fabricator. Anyway, in 1981, Sarah received a commission to do this huge public sculpture in New York City, and when we think of public sculpture in a traditional sense, we probably think of a person on a horse, somebody that we can recognize, Mm -hmm. always representational, And Richard Serra thought, why not produce something that's a little bit more provocative and that's not going to guide a viewer's interpretation? And so he did something called Tilted Arc, which was this massive wall that kind of swelled. And so at certain angles, it looked like it was a straight wall. And then in others, it looked like it was curvilinear and bifurcated the plaza that it was in. And some people really got it. And they said, you know, controversial art like Manet's Olympia ends up being the foundation for the generation. And then other people who really hated it, they said it's a gigantic eyesore. It takes away the functionality of the space. And it actually is physically unsafe because people, if they wanted to assault somebody, could hide in one, one part of Tilted Arc and then... You know, you can't see everything when there's this huge metal sheet in the middle, and also it was dirty, people were peeing on it, and it ended up being taken away in 1989. And that's a really great example of a possible violation of the First Amendment, of the government's intervention in the art space, and a really interesting case study for public art and non-representational imagery within that world.
0: How much did it smell like urine? (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. I
1: was a tiny child when okay. it was taken down, so down I don't know. am just saying there might be a
0: <laughs> good reason why it was taken away.
1: But you know what? Richard Serra's work often rusts, and the materials that he uses, what's that word? Ayad, um, ayah something. When...
0: Ayahuasca? Are you, yeah, on, yeah, are yeah, you that, on it right I'm now? I'm on it.
1: It feels good. <laughs> no, no. When rust oxidizes. Yeah,
0: oxidizes. Yeah, Certainly so, not aya. Oxa. Oxa. <laughs>
1: Whatever. It's close. I'm not a very good speller. So that's something to consider when you're inside the space of Richard Serra. It also activates your sense of smell Mm. and it smells like an industrial product because it is. And so did it smell like urine? Probably. But then maybe that was part of bringing in the all of the senses from the city into this one localized experience.
0: Well, there you go, guys. If you don't know minimalism, (laughs) now you know a little bit about it. And certainly, I wasn't very educated in that space. And uh, I really did enjoy educating myself and talking to Lizzie and getting myself more edumacated. (laughs) All right, guys. Peace.